You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Hey everyone. Um, Today's reading is all of Daniel 5. So if you can follow along in your Bibles. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and will have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise man and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. And those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. 
you had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is what these words mean. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of Babylonians, was slain, and Darius of Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Thanks, Alex, for that Bible reading. Excellent job. Uh, I was a bit rude before. I didn't introduce myself. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you're new, I'd love to to say hi to you afterwards. Uh, As we come to think about Daniel chapter 5, let's pray and ask that God would be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the one who uh, speaks to us, who reveals mysteries, who teaches us. And so we pray that you would reveal your truth to us today, that you would speak through me, through my weak words, but you would speak powerfully to our hearts and minds so that we would know you better and uh, come to be more like Jesus. Amen. Just got to get my clicker. I've got some slides today that that might be good news for some, maybe not for others, but uh, I enjoy slides, so we have some slides. Uh, While our church has been working through the book of Daniel, I've had a pile of commentaries and study books on my desk, and I've noticed a common theme Uh, among them in terms of the covers. Uh, A lot of them have an image of a lion on the cover. Oh no, we've gone the wrong one. (laughs) See, there we go. This is why slides are so great. Um, So a lot of the books have a picture of the lion on the front and I think most publishers kind of identify this as the key image of what Daniel is about. Either they're thinking about Daniel in the lion's den in chapter 6 or maybe chapter 7 there's a dream where the kingdom of Babylon is depicted as a lion. But there's one Bible study book I have that stands out from the rest. It has a picture of a sandcastle by the sea. Hopefully. Yeah, look at that. A sandcastle by the sea. And the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced this is a better picture of what Daniel is about. The book of Daniel shows us again and again that as impressive as human kingdoms may look, they are but sandcastles in God's eyes. He can knock them over whenever he pleases and causes a new one to be built. They may stand for a long time, but eventually the tide will come in and they'll be washed away. This is true for kingdoms, governments, corporations, but it's also true for individual people. You can spend a lifetime building yourself up with your back to the waves, but the waves are still coming. This is the message of Daniel 5, and it gives us a picture of God's sovereignty that prompts us to weigh our options carefully. So, let's jump in at verses 1 to 9. If you've got a Bible, it would be great to have it open. And we're going to see how this lesson starts to unfold. King Belshazzar throws a party to honour himself, but it backfires. 
Now, we don't know much about this Babylonian king, but this chapter doesn't give a particularly flattering picture of him. If you look carefully, you kind of read between the lines, you'll see that he's desperate to be honoured and clearly hates living in the shadow of his father, King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was a, an impressive guy who frequently gathered large crowds of people to show off his power and authority. If you've been here for a few weeks, you'll you remember the, the lists of people that he kept gathering. And, you know, he um, had a dream, he didn't understand what it meant, so he called in the magicians, enchanters, the sorcerers and astrologers. Then he built a great big statue out of gold and wanted people to worship it. So he assembled the, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials for the dedication. Here is an impressive man who commands large numbers of people. He conquered nations. He oversaw grand construction projects and he ruled with fear. And then there's Belshazzar, who has a drinking party. Now, he wants to show that he can command legions of people too, so he invites a thousand Babylonian nobles to his drinking party. And he also invites all of his wives and concubines to show off at his party. But he knows it's not enough, so he comes up with a plan to outdo his royal predecessor. Have a look at verse 2. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Now we first learn about these goblets back in chapter 1 of Daniel, verse 2. We read that Nebuchadnezzar took them from the temple of God and put them in the temple of his God in Babylon. So he was proclaiming his belief that he had defeated Israel and their God and that his God had been involved in that. But he still kind of saw these precious articles as being sacred, which is why he put them in the treasure house of his God. Now, Belshazzar, he's had no great conquests. He's built no mighty statues. In fact, he wasn't even really the king of Babylon. We're going to take a bit of an archaeological detour. For those of you who love these sorts of things, enjoy the ride. For those who maybe not so excited, hopefully it'll be an interesting ride anyway. As we think about this, it will help us to better understand this man's dilemma. So it's been known for a long time that Nebuchadnezzar had lots of sons, but none of them were named Belshazzar. And of the four kings that came after King Nebuchadnezzar, none of them were named Belshazzar. In fact, the last king was a guy named Nabonidus. And so it was thought that Belshazzar was just a Jewish invention. However, in 1854, a clay cylinder was found by an archaeologist which had an inscription by Nabonidus. And really interesting, it was dated to about a year before the events of Daniel chapter 5. And in it, King Nabonidus speaks of his eldest son, Belshazzar. Other discoveries have revealed that Nabonidus actually spent many years away from Babylon, from the capital, and he left his son in charge. I share this partly because I think history is cool and it shows us that we can actually trust the Bible. It's a historical document. If you are excited about that, I've actually got a green handout on the welcome card you can grab later with more fun 
historical, archaeological facts about Daniel 5. But I also share this with you because it helps us to see why Belshazzar feels the need to compete with Nebuchadnezzar. For starters, he's not really the king. His dad is. The word used for king in this chapter could have a broader meaning. It could also include regent or some other title for a ruler. And also, he was not actually the son of Nebuchadnezzar. His father, Nabonidus, was not even part of the royal family. He became a king through an assassination. The empire was in decline at this time, facing threats from the Medes and the Persians. And so there was a lot of pressure on this pseudo-king living in the shadow of his so-called father. So he comes up with a plan to show his greatness. He takes the gold and silver goblets that Father Nebi held in such esteem and he fills them with wine so that his nobles, his wives and his concubines can drink from them. That would be a bit like taking your dad's bowling trophy or his football premiership cup and drinking a milkshake from it. Or like getting your mum's you know, bachelor diplomas hanging on the wall, pull out the paper and use it to pick your teeth clean. It's pretty disrespectful, isn't it? It's a deliberate act of defiance. So Belshazzar is trying to show that he's braver and bigger than his predecessor. And to make it worse, the party makes a toast. See in verse 4. They praise the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. In verse 3, the narrator tells us that these holy vessels came from the temple of God and now these men and women are using them to praise false gods. I think Belshazzar is trying to show that he's not even afraid of the God of the Jews. But he should have been. Because see what happens next? I'll read out verses 5 and 6. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Now, we're not told yet what the writing actually was. That kind of builds the dramatic tension for us. But the king calls in his wise men to see if they can interpret the meaning. And when they fail, he's even more terrified. It's a pitiful sight, isn't it? Here's this man trying to show off to more than a thousand guests how great he is, but now he's exposed before them all. Red says his legs became weak. Could also be translated as the knots of his hips were loosened. Just kind of a Hebrew jokey sort of way of saying that maybe he wet himself. And so King Belshazzar threw a party to honour himself and it's massively backfired. So two people then enter in to help him, but rather than rescue him, they add to his shame. This is our next point. In verses 10 to 24, we'll see that the queen and Daniel remind the king of the truths about God that he had ignored. So look at verses 10 through to 12. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in them. 
In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. Now who's this queen? Surely she's not a wife of Belshazzar because his wives and concubines are already there. So maybe this is his mum, Nabonidus' wife would be the queen. Or maybe this is one of Nebuchadnezzar's widows. In any case, she's pretty gutsy, isn't she? She just marches into the banquet hall unannounced and gives a speech that really is less than flattering of the king. She actually draws attention to his alarm and to his pale face, just in case anyone missed it. He notices, uh, she notices that the king's knots have been loosened and literally what she says is, oh, there's a man who's good at loosening knotty problems. What cheek! And she also further highlights the contrast between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. She refers to him twice as your father, just to rub it in. Now we know that he wasn't his direct biological father, but yeah, that word can also mean male ancestor or predecessor. And so we get the idea. Belshazzar was meant to carry on in the footsteps or the legacy of Nebuchadnezzar, but he's not really measuring up. He should have known that Daniel was the chief of the wise men and that he twice helped interpret dreams for the king. And so the queen ends her speech with great confidence. She says, call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. Well, the king agrees and he calls Daniel in. He would have been in his 80s by now and so perhaps he'd retired from active duty. But there's a hint that Belshazzar did actually know about him. He says in verse 13, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? So he knows this guy is a Jew. It's possible that Belshazzar knew about Daniel all along, but saw him as yet another prize that Nebuchadnezzar had seized, and so he deliberately ignored Daniel as yet another act of defiance. In any case, he makes Daniel an offer. Verse 16. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Well, Daniel agrees, but he declines the king's gifts and rewards. And then before he gives the interpretation, he launches into a long speech about Father Nebuchadnezzar. He recounts the events of chapter 4 where the king became proud because of the power and glory that God had given him. And so God humbled him and he became like a beast for seven years, living with the wild animals until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms and sets over them the rulers that he chooses. And then his sanity was restored. We saw that last week, didn't we? And here's the sting in the tail. In verse 22, Daniel says, But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Did you catch that? Though you knew all this. 
It's all been a big show. The Queen and Daniel have spoken about the history of Nebuchadnezzar as if Belshazzar had no idea, as if he didn't know that there was this wise man called Daniel and didn't know about how the king of Babylon had been humbled over a seven-year period. He didn't know that the king had declared the God of the Jews to be the Most High God. He just pretended that he didn't know. He wanted to ignore it. He wanted to forget the past, to step out of the shadow of his father so he could make his own mark on the world. And so the queen and Daniel remind him of the truths about God that he had ignored. God is sovereign. God appoints rulers. God raises men up and he humbles them. Thus, Belshazzar's actions are doubly damnable. So look at how Daniel ends the first part of his speech. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. Well, you've all been waiting for it. We're about to find out what the writing actually was and what it meant. And as we'll see, it's about God being in charge. Here's our next point for verses 25 to 31. The writing on the wall confirms God's sovereignty and signals the end of the kingdom of Babylon. Have a look at verse 25. This is the inscription that was written. Many, many tekel parsin. Now, you may have noticed that several times the king asks people to read out the inscription. It's not because he couldn't read for himself, but because he wasn't sure on how to pronounce it. So now we're going to have a bit of a language lesson. We've done archaeology and history. Now some language. See, this was probably written in Aramaic since that's what we have recorded in Daniel. This chapter is written in Aramaic. And much like Hebrew and Arabic, this language was typically written without the vowels. So just the consonants. Now, that might seem strange that anyone would write that way, but we do it in English too, don't we? We cut the vowels out. Back in the ancient days of the early 2000s, some of you may remember that, uh, we used to have character limits on our SMSs. And it'd be like, you know, 20, 30 cents an SMS. And so we came up with all these wonderful ways to abbreviate words so that you'd only have to send one text and save a little bit of money. Now, you could read the words without the vowels because the context told you what that word was supposed to be. But imagine you've only got four words, sorry, four words in verse 25 without the vowels. There's not a lot of context there, is there? So how is someone supposed to figure out which vowels to add in? Let's say we had the letters M and N, like in the first word in Arabic. We might be confused about which vowels to put in. It could be two O's, and you could get mono or moon, or you could add in an A or a Y and get many. So part of the difficulty for Belshazzar and the wise men is that the four words without vowels could be nouns or verbs. Like we're getting hardcore English lesson here, aren't we, as well? This, this is good for you. So let's say that the first one was a verb. 
then that would be the word for count. If it was a noun, then it would be a different word. It's a unit of measurement known as a minor. In fact, all of these words could be a unit of weight or currency, a minor, a shekel. It's a bit like the word pound. Yeah, we know that pound can be a way to describe how heavy something is. It can also be currency money in Britain. And it can also be a verb since you can pound something into the ground. So the writing on the wall could be read as counted, a minor, a shekel and two halves. That's why it's confusing. It's like why would God send a hand to write down some sort of accounting information on the wall? Is he balancing his bank accounts? But Daniel knows that this is not primarily about the nouns, but about the verbs. And that's what we get from his interpretation in verses 26 to 28. Here is what these words mean. This is Daniel speaking. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. There's even a play on words. You can probably see in English that the word Perez is connected to the word Persians. So this is not someone counting out their money. This is God judging Belshazzar. He has found Belshazzar to be lacking and his kingdom will be given to others. Now this wouldn't have been a surprise to Daniel. After all, he'd had these visions and dreams, hadn't he? In fact, chapter 8 is actually set earlier than this chapter. And Daniel had had a dream about the Medes and Persians rising up as a shared kingdom. No doubt, when Daniel stepped into the banquet hall, he saw the writing on the wall, he knew exactly what it meant. Belshazzar's time was up. Here is a man who was desperately trying to make himself look more weighty in the eyes of his kingdom. It is revealed as a man who lacks any real substance. Well, we read on in verses 29 to 31. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. God's judgment is swift. Within hours of having this message interpreted, he's dead. And the Babylonian Empire comes to an end. God has shown that he is sovereign. He's in control. That's the key lesson of the book of Daniel. He is the God most high. He governs the whole world. Kingdoms come and go according to his plan and his timing. He appoints rulers and he removes rulers. Nebuchadnezzar had learned this lesson the hard way. We've seen that over a number of chapters. But his successor refused to learn that lesson. The story of King Belshazzar shows us that God is still sovereign even when people ignore that. You see, he thought he could do a better job. He thought he could secure his sandcastle. 
He thought he didn't have to worry about the incoming waves. He thought that if he outdid his father, if he praised the right gods and impressed everyone at his party, that he could show that he was in control. But he made the wrong choice, didn't he? He weighed his options poorly. That's the lesson of Daniel 5. God is still sovereign, even when people ignore him. So weigh your options carefully. This is still true today. From the rulers of nations right down to us little people who rule our own lives, God is ultimately in charge, whether we like it or not. And he's given proof of this by sending his son Jesus to the earth. Let me put it this way. This is our last point. The writing is on the wall for human kingdoms since God has set his son over all. The writing's on the wall. You know that phrase, right? It comes from this chapter. We still use it today in our culture. We, we use it when we see that the end seems inevitable. Well, the writing is on the wall for human kingdoms. In verse 21, Daniel shares what Nebuchadnezzar learned. The Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Well, who has God set over all kingdoms? His Son, Jesus. We learn this in the letter to the Philippians. Listen to chapter 2, verses 9, 10, and 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was executed on a cross in an act of human rebellion against God. That was all part of God's plan. God raised him up to new life, rose, raised him up in glory and seated him on the highest throne. It doesn't matter whether people believe that or not, it's still true. You might keep making your castle of sand with your back to the ocean, but the sovereign waves of God's rule are still coming in. So weigh your options carefully. And one thing that makes that particularly hard to do is pride. I think that's what we learned from this chapter. It's my first application for you today, which is a bit of a warning. Beware the pride of Belshazzar that blinds us to the spiritual lessons of our predecessors. You know, pride can come in many forms. But at the centre of it all is a heart that says, I want people to honour and praise me because I deserve it. Nebuchadnezzar, well, he'd accomplished a lot, hadn't he? And he was proud of that. He was proud of the glory of his kingdom. And he demanded whole nations bow down to him. Now, Belshazzar hadn't really accomplished much. But he was still proud, wasn't he? Because he still thought that he deserved people to bow down to him. And so he wanted to prove himself worthy to his subjects. And in his pride, he despised Nebuchadnezzar. Rather than seeing Nebuchadnezzar as someone that he could learn from, he saw him as someone to compete with, someone to defeat, perhaps even someone to pity because of his weak submission to the God of the Jews. Aren't we all like that at times? There are people in our lives who actually have good things to teach us, 
but our pride blinds us to their lessons. For years, I ignored what my parents had to say about Christianity. I figured science explained everything I needed to know, and in my pride, I viewed them as backwards and old-fashioned. Even after I became a Christian, there were times when I viewed their spiritual wisdom and experiences in the church as irrelevant. I mean, how relevant is church life from the 70s and 80s to me? It was just outdated. It took me a long time to be humble enough to listen to them. And I now think of all the years I wasted because of my pride. Whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, it's easy to ignore the spiritual lessons of your predecessors. Maybe it's Christians from the past. You might wonder, what could a Christian writer from 100 years ago possibly offer you? You might think that all church traditions must be overthrown. There's nothing good in them. Every belief has to be updated for the modern world. Or maybe it's Christians who, who aren't dead yet. They're just older than you. You might wonder, what could you possibly learn from people with kind of old-fashioned moral views? Or what could you possibly learn from people who didn't grow up with the internet? Maybe like me, it's your Christian parents or older siblings or other relatives. You might wonder, what could you possibly learn from someone you grew up with? Surely you know everything about them. Pride blinds us. Yeah, we think new equals good, and so old equals bad. We think that we're the first ones to ever grapple with murky moral dilemmas or to struggle with temptation or have doubts about the Bible. But while technology may have changed, people haven't. All humans struggle with the same issues of the heart. Each generation of believers, each individual has had to face their own challenges and trials and God has brought them through. They have learned. And so don't be foolish like Belshazzar. Don't be stubborn or rebellious or reckless because you're too proud to admit that perhaps you could learn a thing or two. And in listening to others, you may just realise that you need help. It could be the way that God brings you to himself and helps you grow. It will be humbling and it will be for your good. Let's move on to our second application, which is an encouragement. We are all found wanting on God's scales, so we need Jesus to weigh in for us. It doesn't matter how glorious or mighty or clever someone may appear to be, no human measures up to God's standards. When we are weighed on God's scales, we are all found wanting. We lack the moral value that God expects of us. We lack the depth and wisdom and maturity that He desires. We lack the substance and integrity that would bring true weight to our lives. We lack the ability to extend our lives. We are like sandcastles, all lined up along the shore, competing with one another, hoping that we'll be big and strong enough but none of us can withstand the tide. The writing is on the wall for us too. But there is hope. There's an encouragement. Jesus has already been weighed for you. He came to live on the earth as a man to live a perfect life for you. He's been weighed and found perfect. And he's done that in your place so that anyone who trusts in him will not be swept away. In fact, Jesus is the ruler 
of a perfect kingdom and he invites you to join it. You see, rather than giving you good advice about how to make a better sandcastle that can withstand the waves, he gives you good news, which is an invitation to join his sandcastle, which is actually not made out of sand at all. It's indestructible and it will survive. Listen to how Paul puts it in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 1. There we are, chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. It's been waiting for us. Giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is so encouraging, isn't it? If you're not a follower of Jesus then know that there's a way for you to measure up in God's eyes. It's by receiving redemption and forgiveness through trusting in Jesus. Let him be weighed in your place so that his achievements are credited to you in God's eyes. If you are a follower of Jesus, then know that you've already been rescued. You are safe and secure in his kingdom. You don't have to build a sandcastle. Whatever threats you may face, from human kingdoms, whether they be nations or individual people, you are safe and secure in the kingdom of light. Can you see then the lesson from Daniel 5? God is sovereign. People may ignore this, but it doesn't make it any less true. So we need to weigh our options carefully. And ultimately, that includes listening to the spiritual lessons of those who have come before us and trusting in Jesus who is waiting on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful true story from Daniel 5, which acts as both a warning and encouragement, a warning to not be proud like Belshazzar, but an encouragement that your kingdom will come, that your kingdom is already here and it is growing, And we can join it by trusting in Jesus. So please humble us all to trust in him and to remain in him. Amen.